When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Ed Fields. Ed serves as Senior Advisor and Chief Strategist for the City of Birmingham Mayor's Office. In his role, Ed is responsible for strategic planning, thought leadership, and supporting transformative projects on behalf of Mayor Randall Woodfin. Ed has also served in key leadership roles in major institutions such as the Birmingham Regional Chamber of Commerce and Alabama Media Group, Alabama's largest news media organization and publications such as AL.com, Birmingham Magazine, and the Birmingham News. A transplant from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Ed received his undergraduate degree in business administration from Alabama State University and earned his master's of business administration from the University of Alabama's prestigious Manderson School of Business. Ed Fields, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Thank you so much, Justin. Honored to be with you in the Uplifting Podcast. The honor is all ours. So you have a very impressive resume. And your job sounds very interesting. Can you explain a little bit more about what your position entails? Yeah, I know, right? Dope title. What <laughs> uh, my mother's proud. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as a senior advisor and chief strategist for the, for the mayor of Birmingham, I, I really operate in a few different lanes. Uh, one is obviously strategy. So I help author, hold accountable, uh, drive the mayor's strategic plan for the city of Birmingham. Uh, I also lead our strategic communications efforts, so our, our public information office, but also strategic partners like other agencies and not-for-profits and others. Just what is the cohesive story we're trying to tell hmm. on behalf of the city of Birmingham? And then in the first term, I was really focused with, uh, I helped build and manage the social justice and racial equity team. At least they reported into me. They have a director, a senior director who does a phenomenal job. But my job has been to connect that work to the mayor's overall vision and be a champion and an advocate, unblock lanes and really organize resources around that agenda. And then lastly, and, and a bit more nebulous is my work just with the mayor senior advisor is just to be a good thought partner um, in amplifying his, his the ethos that he's trying to drive here. We have a national network around our mayor. My job is to help steward that alongside mm -hmm. him uh, in aid of him, but also thinking about the next generation. The mayor is a four, he's 40 years old as recorded as of this recording. So he's a young leader, but there's a bevy of folks who are behind him. I mean, all the way down to the high school level. Mm. So engaging and stewarding those relationships is a big part of what I do in that senior advisor role. But as strategists, I connect with the other chiefs on behalf of the mayor, chief of staff, chief of operations, to make sure that we are driving his agenda. That sounds like a very 
difficult balancing act. And in your sector, what are some of the greatest opportunities for impact when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion? You mentioned that as part of the story you want to tell about Birmingham, part of the ways in which you want to strategize and push forward the vision of the city. So what are some of the greatest opportunities that exist there? Yeah, well, the greatest opportunities were actually bred before us and for mm -hmm. us from our elders here in this civil rights city. And so, so much of the work is really about privileging certain voices, at least recognizing that in the mayor's office, in leadership in the city, we are de facto or intentionally privileging certain voices who have access to not only the mayor, but to this so-called halls of power. Um, how easy is it to access information mm. and to convert that information into something useful? You know, Justin, one of the things I noted, when I, what I learned when I got to City Hall, because my background is not politics at all. I am someone from a career standpoint, really took a different type of path. And I hope that for your listeners who are new in this space, that they can know and have confidence that you can still win even when you make a left or right turn. <laughs> um, yes. it, it can still work because the skill sets are still there. Bottom line, um, I learned pretty early on that in the public sector, there is a ton of publicly available data that's not always very accessible. And so mm -hmm. when you think about equity, I always think about some of the big corporations and folks with money, they can send attorneys down here, spend a couple of hours at the planning and engineering permits, dealing with business licensing or, or doing public information requests, getting publicly available data sets, mm -hmm. um, traffic uh, patterns and uh, crime statistics and whatnot, that's available to the public, but they can afford to pay somebody, get that data, scrub it, and then incorporate it into their data systems and actually use it to make money or to, to identify, uh, you know, opportunities and challenges. Small mom and pop businesses can't do that. We're a 70%, 74% black city in terms of population. Mm. But I would say that the people at the extremities of the city who are the painters, and the daycare operators, and, and I like to say the big mamas who are just trying to increase their, mm -hmm. their economic situation, they have to come down here to get a business license or they don't get access to certain data that really is already paid for. And so mm -hmm. that's a huge opportunity is for us to be thinking about not only from a narrative standpoint, how do we privilege voices, but how do we increase access to certain um, data systems and programs? And you mentioned your role in the public sector, and then you mentioned interactions in the private sector. Most of our listeners are in the private sector. They're thinking about how to create a more inclusive and equitable environment within their organizations. And how would you say, what opportunities exist for them to work with the public sphere and with the city or their local governments to create more inclusion? Well, I will tell you, um, it depends on who's in leadership. <laughs> right. You got to have a leader elect, elected or or it could be appointed leadership. Uh, there are some cities, for instance, that have the city manager set up where it's not an elected person making most of the decisions, but an appointed person who has more authority and is a little bit insulated from the political dynamic. But I would offer up a couple of different lanes and paths to be able to engage public sector if you're in a private one is find unique public-private partnerships that are already working and hitch your wagons to them. So in, for instance, in Birmingham, 
we created out of the mayor's office, Birmingham Promise, which is a program that allows high school students in Birmingham to do internships, to make $15 an hour and earn college credit, and then to go to college tuition free upon graduation. That's exclusively for Birmingham City School students, which is a 95% Black population. And so this is a solution to increase accessible workforce, increase educational outcomes, actually put money in the pockets of the people here in town and hopefully incent them to stay in the, in the state and come back to the city. That's a, that's a way you want to drive an increase your talent pool, right? Mm-hmm. Like increase talent right. pool with local indigenous talent by developing them with a longer lens. The private sector has the benefit of stability, foundation dollars, and so many others. Make a long play by actually working with a strategic partner that is in line with the public sector, but perhaps doesn't always expose you to some of the risk of dealing with the public sector. But there's another lane around boards and agencies. So quiet is kept. It shouldn't be a secret, but it's just little known that in the city of Birmingham, there are more than 125 different boards and agencies. You know, you think about your libraries and uh, school boards, which is actually separate here, but in other places, appointments may come from the mayor or the city council. But here we've got transportation, you've got the airport and water system. Those appointments to those boards are made by the mayor and the city council, and they often include people from the private sector. Mm. That is a tremendous way to to impact the public good. Um, In fact, one of your previous guests um, was the chair of a housing authority here in Birmingham. When you think about direct impact on the communities that your business may actually be serving, it just gives you a whole other perspective that, that to me, from a business perspective, is market intelligence. actually understanding what's happening on the ground while doing some good so as you think about developing your talent inside your organization not just people of color and and other folks who may be on the margins of traditional sense of opportunity in your corporations but perhaps some of your white brothers and sisters who are there who might benefit from the exposure of being on the housing authority board or committee that's that's a heck of an orientation to thinking about value differently, especially when you're engaging multiple millions of dollars of resources that, um, again, sits in the public sector, but the private sector certainly impacted by. And I like what you said at the beginning of this answer about figuring out what's already happening and what's already working and hitching your wagon to it. Because lots of times there's the difficulty that arises where people want to recreate the wheel just so that they made something new. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up canceling out other things that are already going well. So how can what advice would you have for folks in the private sector who want to increase their community engagement, especially with underrepresented communities, but do so with that balance between I want to support rather than take away. So I want to hitch my wagon to something that already exists. But at the same time, I want to do something that's authentic to who we are. So we're not completely subsumed by right. the partners. So how what, what criteria have you seen that works for a genuine partnership between community partners and their folks in the private sector? Yeah, it's really about the quality of the relationships. Hmm. The people who are in proximity to the service you seek to do. So uh, I used to manage the venture capital club here in Birmingham, for instance. 
And I can't tell you how many of those guys seemingly well-intentioned. Yeah. I would say mostly well-intentioned because I knew them personally who just didn't have relationships with a lot of folks in the black community. And one of those people in particular wanted to create a, a new project to really help people understand we're all in the same situation. Um, we're all, we're all people and we're all in this together. And so he, he attempted to create his own program. I don't know if it ever got traction, but he was probably one degree off in that he has a relationship with at least somebody in this case, me, his first thought to do something good was to create something good and then come approach me with it as opposed to going a couple levels deeper in the relationship with me to determine and maybe discover where I may be already engaged in something that could be a bridge. And so instead of this either or binary thinking about, okay, I don't want to be subsumed, but I don't necessarily want to create something totally new, find a strategic partner. And if you don't have one that's in proximity to you that you can't perceive, to me, that's the work that needs to be done first. Mm. So and do the research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, research, but, but relationships. Right? Yes. Social capital so that you have the bridging, what they call bridging social capital, where somebody can transfer your credibility because you've got some sort of relationship equity with them. And that's, uh, I've learned that most from our mayor, who's just been a phenomenal relationship builder. And I, I, I mean, I mean, genuinely, he's, Younger than me, but I've learned a lot about leaning into relationships without the expectation of return and letting and watching that work. And you mentioned that fabulous phrase, relationship equity, and about establishing and building the relationships in the first place. But what are some strategies that organizations you've worked with, the things they put in place? to ensure that the relationship equity continues. So if I do everything right for the first three years of establishing the relationship, what sort of procedures, protocols, policies might I put in place to make sure it stays that way? Because mm. after five years, it could be like, all right, that was cute. I thank you for your input. We're steamrolling and doing what I wanted to do anyways. So have you seen measures that work where, it, where organizations keep themselves in check and maintain relationship equity when the status quo and the normal way of doing things almost constantly erodes it. So what policies can preserve that relationship equity? Well, the cities are going to be a really bad example to use because uh, <laughs> cities aren't really well built for that because the right. nature of them is cyclical. Right. On elections and, and other things that are out of the control of decision makers. But there are, I'm, I'm pulling on other parts of my background now that mm -hmm. a good answer to that. Uh, first of all, I'm in Birmingham. I think something to note for your listeners, if they are in other cities that are mid-sized cities or smaller cities, there tends to be less churn. Things tend to be more stable, i.e. stale, for long. Mm. And so right. they really don't come up against that challenge as often as they probably should. But where I have seen work, so for instance, I was involved with the Giving Circle, a National Giving Circle Network. This is a, a group of people of color who put their resources together to make an impact as opposed to doing their own individual philanthropies. And we did some work in Denver and I love what they did in Denver because they went through a hell of a lot of change and it was, it was uncomfortable a lot of times, but there were three things that they had. One was they had a CEO who was a courageous enough to drive it. So making sure that if you have a bold CEO that you're supporting her or him and their effort. Uh, two is to make sure you have people on deck uh, so 
being really aggressive, not on the so-called young professional tier, but thinking about people who may just be at the on the other side of what your typical boundaries are. They may be older folks. We got a lot of people retiring now. It's just really backing up and making sure you have a web of people around you that can perceive what's happening and can be the next up. And then the third piece is really about accountability circles. So having mm. advisory groups, advisory boards, I'm a fan of affinity groups because those are things that while they may not have governance authority, legislative authority, they do have social contract authority, hold people accountable and, and they can use their voice uh, and bring that to the table. So those are three strategies I think are really effective and they're not rocket science, but you got to think about them intentionally and, and lean on them. I love that concept of social contract authority and figuring out what community partners, even if not from a formal legal board governance structure, can have an entity that remains intact to provide insight. That's fantastic. So we love to share stories on the podcast to illustrate how other people can be successful implementing diversity, equity, inclusion into their work. What examples do you have that you've come across in your particular sphere of influence? Well, I will tell you, my, my pride and joy here in my time at the city has been a program we created called ACE. It's the Academy of Civic Engagement. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, it can be a very challenging place to navigate here at City Hall. And so we created a program that allows our residents to come in uh, for seven to nine weeks. Um, we deliver every single department head to them based on themes from workforce to public safety, from the chief of police and others. And they share a brief presentation and then it's just a conversation. We do that in public libraries. And then we do city hall tours and deliver the mayor and city councilors together. Um, they do a strategy session with me. So I'll get to a whiteboard. And I mean, we've, we've engaged 500 residents at this point. My goodness. Who leave with a certificate, who feel like they understand better, not only what the city does, but who does it. And they know who to reach out to now. So they become instant navigators and enthusiasts for what civic innovation can do and bring their voices to the table. So one of the best examples I have is we were doing one of those strategy sessions that about 15 residents, two black women, one older, one younger, one new to the city, one a, a, a very long time resident. And the long time resident older woman said, Chief, why don't y'all ever engage the young people and get them to do things? They can help clean, they can help cut the grass. They can do these things. Y'all should, y'all need to do better with that. And before I could respond, and we're just sitting in a big circle, before I could respond, the younger African-American woman who's new to town, um, I say younger, she was in her 30s. She said, well, she turns and she says, well, that's what we're here for. We can bring those people to the table. We know what to do. These are our kids. And so they ended up in this dialogue and it was beautiful, like, to have them in the space with the chief strategists of the city, along with other folks from around the city of all backgrounds. And instead of them shooting darts at the mayor, we've created a space for them to actually understand each other, find each other, mm-hmm. and then perhaps find a solution for themselves and being able to do that. That's one very small example. And one story of a dozen I could tell you about how that one initiative is privileging the voices of particularly Black women who make up the majority of households here and who also represent the biggest category of poverty here. So we take this work seriously. City Hall in Birmingham has been the purveyor of harm 
for black folks, not only in the city, but has been a proxy of that for the country, as we know about Birmingham and Dr. King and so many other people's efforts. So that's never lost on us. It's never lost mm-hmm. for the mayor. It's never lost on me in terms of how I keep focused on the, with our eyes on the prize. You folks are doing an amazing job of turning things around and creating a city of great opportunity. So throughout our conversation, you've brought up all sorts of things, and I see your eyes lighting up with all sorts of joy and excitement about different things. So the question we love to ask all of our contributors and all of our guests here is, what brings you joy and why? Well, so many things. I feel blessed. At present, there's two things I would say that are bringing me joy in particular. I've rediscovered or re-engaged my love of writing. And so I've been Mm. writing and reading a lot. I have a blog and I just finished a 26 post series, basically Mm. equivalent of a book, Um, but a a really good, meaningful series that honored some people and shared some insights. So uh, I'm an honestly ed on Medium and folks can find it there. I'm, I'm really excited about that. The other thing is just some new music, a brother named Lucky Day. So I'm a soul head. All right. This, this young guy that's out right now, he's kind of in the, in, the, in the vein of a D'Angelo. And so okay. I didn't expect that. That's bringing me to it right now. Just a little <laughs> thing sometimes, you know. All right. And you mentioned some ways to follow your blog and stay uh-huh. in contact with you. So what are some other ways that people can get some joy from your writing and stay in contact with you in general? Yeah. So all my handles are... At Honestly Ed, um, particularly on LinkedIn and Instagram. So I'd love to connect with anyone. LinkedIn is my favorite platform. And check out my Medium page, follow it, share it. There's some cool stories out there about Birmingham and beyond. All right. We look forward to it. We'll make sure to put that information in the contact info describing this video. So Ed Fields, thank you very much for joining us and sharing all your great insights. Thank you. It's It's been an honor. All right, all of you out there, we're so glad you were able to tune into this week's episode of the Uplifting Impact podcast. And we need more people like you to uplift the impact. So in order to do so, be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website, upliftingimpact.com, or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Ponder, and Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.